and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I rep kids' books, from baby books through young adult and everything in between. Today, I'm excited to have a guest, Sandra Mitchell. Sandra, I have known for a decade, but this is the first time we're really speaking with voices, and that's exciting. And um, I'm thrilled because she's going to talk about one of my favorite new anthologies, All Out, which we're going to get into what it's about, and also how to make an anthology and all kinds of other great questions. So let me see if I can get Sandra Mitchell on the line. Hi, Sandra. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. So first things first, your new anthology, All Out, The No Longer Secret Stories of Queer Teens Throughout the Ages, which is quite a mouthful. It is, it is. Coming out February 27th, which is right around the time that listeners are listening to this probably. Yay. <laughs> so what can you tell us about this book? You know, this is, this is you know how people talk about this is the project of my heart. This is the project of a lot of hearts. Um, you know, I've been with my agent for a while now and sometimes he'll like send me an idea or sometimes I'll send him an idea. Um, And I had already done one anthology in 2013 called defy the dark. And I really loved doing it. And I was like, can we do it again? Can we do it again? Can we do it again? (laughs) And he was like, well, you know, we need to wait until you have like totally the right, you know, hook it's, you know, the market's getting more crowded, you know, agency, agency things. And, um, Right around the time of the shooting in Orlando, he and I were, t- and the election, he and I were talking about, because, you know, I'm queer and he's queer. Um, and we were talking about, like, you know, growing up and the different experiences that we had had growing up. Um, you know, I'm considerably older than he is, but, you know, even he, he grew up in a Catholic family and I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So we have a lot of that overlapping experience where, you know, we didn't actually meet queer people until we were much older. Um, And at the time there wasn't a lot of, well, first of all, there wasn't a lot of literature for teens period, but pretty much any literature where, you know, there were queer characters, there was going to be misery. Somebody was going to die. Somebody was going to get AIDS. Somebody was going to, you know, end up in a monastery. I mean, Oh, yeah. It was, you know, there there were not any of those, you know, we didn't have a Judy Bloom, you know, for, for queer kids. And he was like, you know, I think it would just be really wonderful, you know, if we could have a, an anthology about queer teens just doing stuff. And I'm like, I am on that. And because I had already written a proposal for To Behind the Dark, I like, snuck around to do talk to a bunch of people as quickly as I could. And like, I slapped a proposal down in his email. I was like, let's do this thing. And so, boom. <laughs> boom. It's like, so, you know, and, and when we sent it out, I mean, a lot of editors were interested in it. We did actually have an auction, which was fantastic. And we ended up with um, T.S. Ferguson at Harlequin Teen, who was also queer. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, this is like layers upon layers upon layers of people who, you know, all wanted these stories when they were 16, every single author that's in the anthology is queer. Um, And when, you know, they all agreed to be part of it, I said, you know, except for the fact that it has to take place before 1999, because, you know, we have that historical hook. I just want you to write the story you wish you had had when you were 16. Mm -hmm. And wow. It's, I mean, you know, I got to ask so many amazing authors to be part of this 
and the stories are so great. And I know that, you know, every editor says, oh, my stories are so great. But these stories really are, they're so fantastic. I mean, I've read them over and over and over again. And, you know, some of them make me cry every time. Some of them make me laugh every time. <laughs> and it's just, it makes my heart big. So I'll uh, say that All Out spans genres and time periods. So it's like from yes. England in the 14th century to 1999, Massachusetts. And also it contains many types of queer representation, trans people, lesbian people, bisexuality, like all kinds of stuff. Yes. So you chose the authors to invite, did you, and you didn't assign the type of story, you let them choose whatever they wanted. Did you kind of help them pick an era or form or did they work completely independently and then you just figured it out? how to puzzle it together or what? You know, except for telling them that it had to take place before 2000, I was like, just go nuts. And some, you know, I had authors who were like, well, could I do, um, you know, a retelling of Robin Hood? You know, Elliot Wake did a retelling of Robin Hood. And I was like, I don't see why not. You know, it's based in history. Um, and I'm not really, you know, like I said, I like to span genres and, and bend things around. But, you know, each author has their own individual needs. Some people were just like, okay, I'm going to go away. And then they came back with a story. And then, you know, some people were like, you know, I have six ideas and I, can you help me winnow it down to like the best one or the one that might fill in um, like an empty space in the anthology, for example. Um, so I was as involved or as uninvolved as the authors wanted me to be. So you're the editor of this anthology for those who may not know. Like, what exactly does the editor of an anthology do that is different from an acquiring editor, say, who works in a publishing house or a copy editor or something like that? Like, um, did you actually edit the stories or did TS do that, um, et cetera? Okay, well, for me, I'm I'm very hands-on when I do an anthology. Um, it's really important to me that that when I say that I edited the anthology, that, you know, I did the bulk of... Um, the actual development of the stories and, you know, the shape of the anthology. So um, TS is my, my acquiring editor and he did have notes, but he didn't, he didn't even get to see the stories until after all of the stories had been through a couple of rounds of revisions with me. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, for the authors involved, you know, I may as well be like, you know, their editor at, at their publishing house because they're all contracted to me. I pay them. Um, you know, I'm responsible for their tax paperwork. I am, you know, responsible for, you know, making sure they hit their deadlines. I'm responsible for making sure they get paid on time. You know, I'm making, you know, I'm responsible for if somebody wants to use a piece of song, um, you know, a quote from television, I'm responsible for making sure that we get the clearances. Um, you know, I do all of that. And I know that there, and I'm, I'm the one who chose essentially everybody in it. Now, of course, you know, my agent has clients and, and he's like, oh, hey, this person might be super fantastic. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Um, but by the time my proposal actually got to any acquiring editors, we already had a, a, a contributor list and a contributor list can always change. Um, but, you know, we already had like we had a you know, I do think about the business of it. I was like, okay, I definitely need, you know, at least two or three New York Times bestsellers. We need to have those tent poles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to have a handful of those award winners so that we have that cachet of, you know, these are also smart stories for smart people. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, there is a lot of business balancing that I do. Now, I know that there are other authors like Jessica Spotswood has done The Radical Element and A Tyranny of Petticoats, which are so fantastic. I love those so much. Um, And she is a lot more collaborative with the acquiring editor than I am. They actually do revision notes together. Um, And so, you know, it really depends on the person doing the editing. But for me, if you're going to be in an anthology with me, I'm going to pick who's in it. Um, You're going to get your majority of revision notes from me. Uh, You're going to get paid by me. You're going to get tax information from me. You're going to get royalty statements from me. Right. Um, And you you do things like choose the order in which they're going to appear and create the shape of it and... I do. And and I don't necessarily do that by myself. When I when I did Defy the Dark, I was with Anne Hoppy and she is so fantastic too. TS and Anne have both been really wonderful. Um she and I actually worked together to figure out like to make like a flow for the stories for Defy the Dark. Um because those were all genre stories and we were trying to get like a you know, a tone through the shade, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um TS let me we picked the order of the stories on this one. So that was lots of fun um, because then I, but I, 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 I reserve the right uh, to be pushy about the first story and the last story in the anthology, which stories those are. Um, my friend Sarah Reese Brennan said is like, you always start long and you end strong. And of course all these stories are great, but you know, I, I like that. I like that, that rule. It mm. makes me feel like <laughs> things have a specific, like I have something that I can check off. Yeah. It's like when you're picking who's going to be in the relay race, you know, who's the anchor. Right. Right. It makes total sense. You know, who's the anchor and who can sprint and, and, you know, you want to make sure that you don't, and this is another business thing that, you know, in general authors don't think about like just when they're doing their novels, but you know, I want to make sure that if somebody picks up the anthology that they're going to go all the way through it. So I'm not going to like, you know, front load all of the most, you know, New York times bestseller authors right in the front, because then people have no reason to read the other stories. It's like, I I want you to flip through that book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's such an immensely flippable through a book. (laughs) Thank you. I really think all the stories are so fantastic and different from each other. And it's yes. I really, I really enjoyed where everybody went with their stories. And it was, this was one of those, it was funny because I mean, there are only so many queer people who are both out and writing in YA. And so like a handful of the authors, like I slid into their DMS. And I mean, I mean, they, I mean, they, they knew me. It wasn't like I was just like nobody. Um, like if it was, if it was somebody I didn't know at all, I asked their agent, but you know, like I slid into, you know, Anna Marie McElmore's DMs. And I'm like, this is the rudest question in the world. But, you know, do you identify as queer openly? Because I'm doing this anthology. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I would never ask you to pick a favorite story out of an anthology, obviously. That's oh, thank you. Mean. That. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> because they're all awesome and totally different. But did any of the offerings surprise you when you got them? Oh, my gosh. Um you know, Sean David Hutchinson's story was so unexpected. Um, I mean, I love everything that he writes anyway. And he has, he just has this amazing imagination that he goes exactly to places that punch all of my big red buttons that I would never think of myself. And he has this story that's about dueling Victorian stage magicians. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Um, but I have to say that, you know, 
God, I really do. I love all of the stories in here, but I'm, I'm going to tell a little story about Taylor K. Mayha real quick because she's brand new. Um, her first novel has not even come out yet. So this is actually her first publication. Um, and the original story that she sent me was a good story. It was a good story, but um, a lot of authors sometimes mismatch the front to the back to their story. So like they start out with magic and it ends as science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the parts just don't quite connect. And so I sent her this, you know, I was trying to figure out, I assume that the ending is where the author wants to be. Right. So I sent her a revision letter and I'm like, well, you know, the first half of the story, it doesn't really match the back half of the story. And we could change this and this and this and this. Or if you really do prefer, prefer the magic of the first half of the story, we can change the ending to do this and this and this. And she's like, well, that's not actually what I was trying to do. And and I said, well, okay, then, you know, we can figure out what you were trying to do. And so we, we talked through it a couple, you know, I think we actually had a Google chat or two about it, you know, just trying to figure out where she wanted that story to be. And at one point she went quiet for a couple of days and then she wrote me and she said, I think that that idea for that particular story is too big for a short story. So I'm going to start over. And I'm like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> No, don't start over. You don't have to start over. All you have to do is fix the ending. It's not a big deal. I promise. Um, and she's like, no, I think I'm going to start over. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. And I was, I was biting my nails and I was really afraid that basically I had broken her before she had even sold her first <laughs> And then she comes back with healing Rosa. And that's, oh, that story broke my heart. Like it gave me, I have like, my hair is starting to stand up on my arms, just thinking about that story, talking to you about it right now. And it, it is a testament to authors listening to their, listening to themselves and what's right for themselves as writers, because could she have fixed that other story? Yes. And it would have been a good story, but is that story as amazing as healing Rosa? Not by a long shot. Healing Rosa is extraordinary. And she listened to her instincts and she pushed back in the right way. And I think a lot of times, especially, you know, new authors are afraid to do that. And, you know, I just, anybody that's listening, I'm like, please advocate for yourself because you know what you can do as an author. I mean, you can't just willy nilly ignore everything. But mm -hmm. in this particular case, she, she understood better than I did that what she wanted to achieve with that story was not doable in the length. Mm -hmm. and so what she created was so much better um, for this anthology and for that moment. And it's just, it, it truly is a spectacular story. Exciting. That's a really great story. Thank you. I secretly, I secretly have a wish list of authors on my hard drive. The file doesn't have a name or anything. It's just in my head. I'm like, if this one does well, maybe I can ask all of these people to do another yeah. one. I mean, that um, seems like I, my fingers are crossed because we need more like this. This was so singular you. and special. So I really hope that, um, that it does do well. So everybody who's listening needs to buy all out. They do. <laughs> they do. This is one of those, you know, a lot of times, you know, books with, you know, people of color in them. Um, there are so, or people, you know, uh, you know, queer people in them um like there's this big expectations like okay here's the book of the season and if it doesn't sell then that proves that those books don't sell and 
And a lot of times it's like a self-fulfilling thing because sometimes those books simply just don't get represented because sales teams think that's not going to sell. So they don't try to sell it and then it doesn't sell. And then everybody's like, oh, look, queer books are books about people of color don't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, Harlequin Teen has, no pun intended, gone all <laughs> out. Um, you know, they are they have supported this book. Um, in really spectacular ways behind the scenes. And there's going to be some really great stuff that's going to be in front of the scenes. Um, For example, the cover, the reason there's a different cover on the review copy from the final is because we went through so many covers because we wanted to make sure it's like, is this cover beautiful? Is this cover pick upable? Um, And so this is one of those books where, all right, it's all queer. I, I mean, the whole team is queer from top to bottom. You know, the editor, the agent, the acquiring editor, all of the contributors were all queer. Okay. And then Harlequin Teen, you know, one of the things that we talked about is like, I don't want you to splash a bunch of rainbows on this and make it look like a pride parade. Right. Not because there's anything wrong with a pride parade, but, you know, 50% of people under the age of 18 identify as something other than heterosexual and cisgender. So if 50% of kids are identifying that way, but can't, you know, maybe they live in Indiana, like I grew up and they can't have that cover in their house or they're going to get caught or, you know, like my agent, Jim, you know, maybe they're in, you know, a particular religious household and they can't have that cover. They'll get caught. It's like, let's make a great anthology cover for a great anthology because these are, these are, the whole point of these stories is that they all contain queer people, but they're not, you know, they're not the coming out stories. They're not the misery stories. These are people who get to do stuff, teens who get to be things, you know, there's magic and adventure and, and, you know, romance and not romance and all of those things. You know, this is an anthology that should theoretically be entertaining for anybody. I feel like when I was a kid in my day, (laughs) Back in my uh, day. You could be gay or a lesbian or bi, but there wasn't like a ton of shades. And now I feel like there are so many shades in between, which is fantastic, that I think kids yeah. are questioning and finding themselves and trying on different identities and um, sort of cobbling their own individual identities together. And it's something that, I mean, 30 years ago, I could not have imagined. So, um, I think that this is for those kids. It really is like, you know, people who are finding themselves. It absolutely is. You know, when I was, I was a teenager back in my day, um, you know, in back in the eighties, there was basically gay and lesbian. That was it. Um, And and cross-dressers. And, you know, there was no understanding of the transgender community at all during that period of time. And so, like, for me, I grew up eventually kind of calling myself bisexual and, you know, like, I'm a woman, but I'm kind of butch. But none of the words ever felt right. And, like, there are words now that feel right for me. And, like, I think that's so fantastic that there are kids now – there's so much more awareness. There's such a more varied spectrum to find themselves on. And, you know, this is, this is now. And it's so great that, you know, so many kids are able to do that openly, but I know for a fact that there are still tons of kids who are, you know, growing up in neighborhoods like my neighborhood, um, you know, growing up in places that are isolated from, 
you know, the bigger cities, you know, it's still transgressive act, you know, to hold your boyfriend's hand if you live in Utah, as opposed to if you're in, in San Francisco. So, you know, it's, it's nice that all of those words are out there, but it's also nice to have all of those words to give to kids that, um, or, or, you know, older people, I, I'm, I'm not going to discriminate <laughs> if you want to read all out, um, to find those words for themselves, because finally finding the, the thing that actually describes you is, is so yeah. liberating. Um, so you've been publishing for a while now. Yes, yes. I'm pretty sure that your first book, uh, Shadowed Summer, was the same debut class with my first book, Flash Burnout. It was, yes. Lisa and I were both in the depths. Miss her a lot. I know. Um, how do you feel that the YA industry has changed in that time? Holy cow. Wow. Um, <laughs> it. All right. I think this pretty much sums it up. When my first book was still in process of coming out, it was a legitimate question to my editor whether or not there would be an ebook of it. <laughs> um, and you know, now we're to a point where everything has an ebook. Some books are ebook originals. Um, it's true. My first contracts did not have ebook right? language in them. And uh, when I sent out Flash Burnout, at least one editor wanted me to send them the manuscript by paper. Yeah, I so. did. I did my revisions for Shadowed Summer all on paper. Um, and I think I did the revisions for the Vespertine, which was 2010, all on paper. And since then, almost all of it has been track changes. It's all been digital. Um, and it doesn't seem like 2009 is that long ago. But yeah, I mean, like, even, were, was there going to be an ebook? And, you know, sending all of these papers back and forth. It was, and, you know, back, th- back then, back in my day, um, <laughs> there you did not query agents online. It was start. You were starting to be able to find information about them online, but like I got my first, I got my first two agents entirely through snail mail. Um, so it's uh, the digital revolution has been huge. It is so amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's terrifying sure. how fast it's gone. <laughs> well, in fairness, I think that we were like the last industry to change. That's true. That's true. Music had already pulled itself up by its digital bootstraps by that point. Because when I was even a baby bookseller, like in the 90s, we didn't even have a computer. Like everything was on index cards. <laughs> the inventory of the whole oh store. Like, really? Wow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, so uh, here's a question. Yes. You write under a couple of pseudonyms in addition to being Sondra Mitchell. Yes. Yes. I am Alex Mallory. I am... Uh, Jessa Holbrook. I am Rory Harrison. Whoa. Yeah, I get around. (laughs) Um, So I get questions from authors all the time about pseudonyms. What prompted you to create these alternate identities? Unfortunately, the answer is really boring. It's, it's, it's business. Um, You know, with uh, Alex Mallory, I was already under contract to Sondra Mitchell and um, one of my books had gotten bumped. And until that contract completed, Sondra Mitchell could not sell any more novels. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, Sondra Mitchell has bills. So, (laughs) you know, we, we double checked the contract. And as long as I chose a different name and a different genre, um, I was free to write another YA novel as long as as it was unrelated to Sondra Mitchell and, and my brand as Sondra Mitchell, which, you know, at that time was mostly paranormal and paranormal historical. Mm-hmm. So um, 
we picked Alex Mallory when I wrote a uh, modern retelling of Tarzan. And, and that was simply because, you know, contractually, Sandra Mitchell wasn't allowed to write that book. Right. Um, Jessa Holbrook, that was, um, that was a really, that was a super um, fun experiment with Razorbill. Um, they were, they thought, um, why don't we try out, like, now that everything is digital, you know, maybe we can do digital serials and people will, will enjoy that. And so they hired me to write while you were away. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to create a, a pseudonym that would kind of go with the genre. So I came up with Jessa Holbrook and, um, you know, it was a romance. So, you know, her, her website was a little pinker and a little sparklier than, than, you know, my other stuff. <laughs> um, and then Rory Harrison was simply because it was a completely different genre and um, it was the house considered a literary novel. So they wanted me to have a separate name for what they considered a literary novel than from my genre work, just so it wouldn't confuse the fans. So it's not like I'm, I'm hiding from spies or (laughs) damn it. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not secretly working for MI5 or anything like that. It's just, it's, 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 business it's just business so what is next for you if you can tell us i absolutely can tell you i am super excited i just turned in a novel called all the things we do in the dark um and it is about a girl who is um a rape survivor who finds a woman's dead body in the woods and rather than hand it over to the police where she thinks it will be manhandled she decides to keep and protect it herself Whoa. Um, yeah. And this is, I mean, this is a, this is the hardest novel that I've ever written. It was very, very difficult um, because, you know, it incorporates a lot of my own sexual assault. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why um, my editor, Kristen Pettit and I decided to go with this novel was because, you know, there's a lot of really wonderful YA literature that deals with um the moment of trauma and deals with the immediate aftermath of trauma. Um, of course, Lori Hall Sanderson's speak is the gold standard mm-hmm. um, for books about sexual trauma. Um, but there aren't a lot of books about people who are further away from it because, you know, we go on, you know, for the rest of our lives, you know, this is something that will affect the rest of our lives. And so, we wanted to write, you know, we wanted me to go to, to go ahead and go to this place that I've been through where, you know, I was assaulted when I was very young. And so this character was also sexually assaulted when she was very young. And rather than discussing like the immediate aftermath of it, it's like, you know, how you hold hands, you know, when you have body trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, how are you comfortable with your own body and, and how do you use your body after something like that when you're far separated from the original event? And, um, you know, sometimes you don't realize that you're doing things that are unhealthy to protect yourself until you're kind of in the, a crisis moment. And I figured a body in the woods would be a really good crisis moment. That's definitely qualifies as a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who's the publisher? Um, that's also Harper. Do you have a pub date? Yes, it is um, scheduled for fall of 2019 right now. We're going to have to wait for that one. Yeah, that one's the, like, like I just turned in the first draft and I was so glad. It really was a very hard book to write. Yeah, and- I can imagine that. <laughs> raining. Yeah. Um, so yeah. now it is advice time. Oh, okay. Yay. Can you help me answer some Dear Abby kind of listener questions? I would love to. Because my first reader listener question is um, asking, it's a 
a person who wants to know from an author's perspective, because many authors still have day jobs, how do you combine doing a day job with things like school visits, Skype visits, and that kind of stuff that is kind of required in a way of many authors? Like, how do you balance having a nine to five job or a, a job of whatever yeah. stripe and doing the a kind of to four job is my yeah, job a promotion yeah. but also the promotional schedule that you know authors kind of have to do i mean i'm not going to lie and say it's easy because it's not there is a lot of balancing that has to be done um that's part of the reason why i took a part-time job because you know if a school doesn't want me for a whole day. If I can come in first thing in the morning, I can bang out a school visit before I go to work in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there is time that I have to take off. When I interviewed for the job, I explained to them that uh, I already had several events booked that I had no, you know, I'd already signed contracts. I have to do them. And then I told them I would minimize that as much as possible. But, you know, there were there would be times when I would be doing events and I I would not be there. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, you know, they've been very flexible um, with me. You know, I don't make, you know, six or seven events all in one day or you know, things like that. Um, like I would do before I had the job, but you know, Skype visits can like Skype visits can be worked in in the morning. Most of the time. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, if it's in the evening, they're like libraries. I can do libraries in the evenings. Um, you know, it, but it is a question of balancing. I cannot do as many events as I would like to do um, when I'm working a job. And that's just the fact of the matter. But what it is, is you have to get to a balance point. Uh, because most of the event, I mean, I, a lot of the events that I do are, are free. You know, I'm super cheap in Indiana because we just didn't have a lot of authors coming through here when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But like, if somebody wants me to go to another state, you know, it's much more expensive. And if I'm making more money doing appearances and workshops and conferences and conventions and things like that, that I'm, that I'm making, you know, at my part-time job, then the part-time job will have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I caution any author, I mean, please be like four or five books into your career before you start trying to do that math because things can change radically and quickly. Um, books can be canceled. Uh, you know, all of a sudden a topic becomes, you know, just overdone or forbidden because something terrible happened. You know, like for example, you know, there are no more cutesy books about, uh, kids going out and shooting themselves in the woods like there were when I was a teenager. What? Uh, because of, Wait, I don't remember well, those books. You didn't read like Arl Stein oh, and Christopher Pike? I don't remember them shooting themselves in the woods. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. There, there were, there, like, there, there was one where the, the, I think it was a cheerleader, was demon-possessed, and they were at, Maybe that was sleepaway camp. And she was like hunting people down in the woods with a gun. And there was another one where the guy was hunting people down with a crossbow in the woods. There was a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. So, okay. Authors, please do not write about people hunting each other in the woods. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? Now that I say that, I'm like, I bet I could figure out a way to do that. That would be. I mean, I thought R.L. Stein has had a little bit of a resurgence. Of ladies, yeah, a new way. So I've actually thought, like, whatever happened to those fear street? You know, the books that I 
we definitely had kind of mass market paperbacks when I was a kid that um that I loved. Yeah, like those two ninety nine specials. Yes, man, I loved those books. I, and you can tell that by what you write. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so next, so basically, it's a balancing act. Is the yeah, it is. It's just it's just like when people ask you, it's like as a woman, how do you balance your family life and your career? It's like you. You know, something, some things get abandoned, some things get ignored, and hopefully you ignore and abandon the right thing at the right time. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So yeah. next question from a listener. Um, this will sound strange, but I'm not sure. Okay. Right. Yes, go on. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if my book is adult or young adult or new adult or what. Basically, it's a fantasy thriller. The character's ages are not really important the main character is 18 but she could be 16 or 20 or 25 she's not really human so that doesn't matter the other characters are between 16 and 30 there's some violence one sex scene a minor romance subplot um but i think it could be read by anyone 15 to 80 so I- oh well then <laughs> here's the thing if the ages don't matter then it's not ya and it's not new adult because ages matter in those categories um, you know, a, a YA book is, is supposed to be emotionally very close to the characters and what they're going through at that period of time in their life. Um, and just because you have teenage characters in a book, it doesn't make it YA. Uh, this is a little older example, but like Curtis Sittenfeld's prep, oh, yeah. all the characters are 16, but that's not a YA novel. That's, you know, it's an adult novel. Right. Because she's um, looking back through the lens. Of right. So, you know, if the ages don't matter, then, you know, it can't be young adult or new adult because part of those categories are explicitly what those ages mean emotionally. Um, I think that that's a fantastic answer. And I thank you because it's been in my Tumblr box for a long time. <laughs> and I literally was like, I don't know. How do I know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually, yeah, that was I, an amazing answer. So thank you. Oh, thanks, thanks. Um, so finally, in the land of reader advice, uh, this might be too hot button or whatever, but Ooh, I love hot buttons. a lot of agents and Let's editors and authors throw around the term or hashtag own voices, hashtag own voices, but can't anyone write anything? What does own voices mean to you? Okay, yeah, anybody can write anything, but it's kind of... <laughs> This is kind of like one of those questions where you just want to, you want to pat them a little too hard on the back. It's like, honey, <laughs> sit down with me. Because here's the thing. Yes. If you are a white, blonde, straight, cisgender cheerleader, and you want to write a book about cheerleader camp, technically is that own voices? Yes. But guess what? You don't need that tag because people are buying your story anyway. Mm-hmm. The, the whole point of own, own voices is that so, you know, marginalized voices, you know, people who are not normally allowed to tell their stories or who have not traditionally been given the opportunity to tell their own stories, they're signaling that I'm telling this story and I'm telling it from my personal viewpoint. There has been, you know, some change, you know, toward the better. I mean, obviously, I'm here talking about All Out, which is, you know, queer author and queer authors, all the contributors. But traditionally, a lot of times, 
you know, a house will be like, okay, well, we have one queer story for the year, so we're not going to do another one. Or we have one book um, about a black character this year, so we're not going to do another one. And a lot of times, straight people and white people are taking those slots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, own voices, yes, technically, if you're writing a story that accurately reflects your own experience, you could use it. But if you're not writing about, you know, your experience as a marginalized person, um, then you're basically breathing somebody else's air and don't do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, agreed. And, and the thing is, is that it can, it can even be tricky because when I did looking for group, I have, you know, I have a cisgender male character who is queer, who initially um, identifies as gay and comes to identify as pansexual. I have a pansexual transgender woman. Um, as these two main characters. Now, I've told you guys, you know, I've, I've said, you know, I'm queer. Um, I personally identify as non-binary and pansexual if everybody needs really specific information. And Harper asked, would you consider this an own voices book? And I had to say no, because you know what? I'm, I'm not a cisgender male. Um, I am not a trans woman. I am pansexual, but you know, that's only one part of their experience. So, you know, it really is about specificity. Mm -hmm. And another thing is like own voices is not my kid is autistic. So I wrote a book about an autistic kid. If it's not your experience, don't use own voices. Agreed. Um, I get a lot of submissions like that where people are misusing that um, hashtag or term because they're, you know. Yeah, that's very frustrating. And you know what? It's frustrating for the readers who really, really want that content. Um, and if you follow like Deb Reese online, there are so many books about, you know, First Nations people from Canada and Native Americans that are, are written by white people. And I mean, they're written by white people with good intentions, but they're not coming from inside those communities. And there's so few of those books that are actually coming from inside the communities. Yeah. That you know, actual native kids who want to see those stories are not seeing themselves reflected because they're not being written by people in those communities. Right. And that isn't to say that anyone can't do research and you know write a fantastic right. book and whatever. They just shouldn't call it own voices because obviously exactly. And you know, and if you're going to do that, you you better do your research. You better do your homework. I mean, you should put as much thought into creating every single character in your book, especially if you're not writing about you know your own group. Um, as you would the it's world building it's world building just like everything else is and if you get it wrong people in the group will know and you have taken a slot away from somebody who could have told it better um okay moving on it is time for hand selling corner you get to put on your book selling hat and tell me a couple of your favorite recent ya's to recommend that people might like if if let's say they read all out and they want more what do they read next? Okay. Well, if you want all out and you want more, 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 and you will, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, Sean David Hutchinson has a new book out called um, the apocalypse of Elena Mendoza. And it is about a girl who was born as a virgin birth and um, discovers that she has the ability to heal people. And it looks like the world might be ending. And Wow. He is so good. He is really so, so good. Um, and one of the things that I really love about Sean's writing, and it really pulls you in, um, 
is because he is not Sean's prose is never purple. It's never flowery, but it's always super compelling. And I, I don't know how he does it because like he just gets your hooks in and like it doesn't let go. And I, I, I've i loved every single one of his books. And this one is really spectacular. Yes. Um, let's see. I recently read, um, oh, Wild Beauty by Anna Marie McLemore. Oh, wow. Now she is, she is somebody who does do like the beautiful language. And it's like, I read her books and I just, I don't understand how a human being can make those words, do those tricks. (laughs) And I feel, I feel like a little drab sparrow next, next to her prose. And I'm just like, I just want to watch and I love this beautiful bluebird. And it's like, you know, I can never be that bluebird, but I want to be so close to it. <laughs> um, and I have to say, um, and this is, it, it's kind of sliding sideways into, into graphic novels. Um, but Nyla Magruder, um, who actually has her very first YA story in, in all. And out, she was one of she, our guests not too long ago. Was she nice. awesome? She is so great. I love her I love so her much. Um, her graphic novel MFK is um, Hugo eligible this year and it is like it is be- all right it is beautiful first of all the way she uses color alone tells a story it's absolutely gorgeous and it goes from different tones um, and, and and you don't even really realize it at the time until you go back to read it but then you see it so clearly when you've seen the whole story the way that she has used color um, and you know it is a story about an ordinary girl who has to you know, she has to t- take care of things. That's a terrible description. <laughs> that is the worst description. You know what? Everyone can listen to our episode with Nyla, or they can just, yes. you know what? Trust you. Go buy it. Yes, trust me. Because it is, it's so good that I can't find the words for you guys. You have become inarticulate in the face of such goodness. That's right. Um, so yeah, Nyla Magruder. Wow. I mean, she does. She really blows me away. So um, finally, I asked this of all my guests, what are you obsessed with this week? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And I will tell you mine first. So you can gather your thoughts and decide what you're obsessed with. Oh, yes. So my obsession this week in keeping with our queer theme is the Netflix Queer Eye reboot. Is it good? Oh my God. Okay. If you missed the original iteration of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, uh, the Fab Five are these experts in culture, grooming, fashion, design, and food. They take over a schlubby straight guy's life for a week. They redo his house, his closet, his looks, his life. It's really fun. But the reboot is... It is! The reboot is, dare I say it, even better than the original. Really? Because in this iteration, the new Fab Five are in Georgia. And they go (gasps) to like rural Georgia and redo people's lives and some of the people wow. they're making over are messed up like life has dealt them some blows maybe so it's not it's not because it like the previous version of it was it you know it was all like kind of urban and it was all kind of funky and everybody was already cool nope. and wow yeah. so they're like wow yeah it's intense oh, wow. actually because like one of the guys uh, one of the um the fab five is a black man and one of the guys that they're redoing is a white cop and yeah. um, wow. in, in very rural Georgia. And it's sort of, uh, you know, they have to have a conversation uh, and see to eye to eye. And they do. And every episode has made me cry. 
Um, the guys are so kind and wonderful. The men they make over make such strides in terms of not only just their closets, but also their outlooks on life. It's so good. I honestly, I loved it. (laughs) I'm going to be up on that then. That sounds amazing. I I need more ASAP. I don't, it's probably going to take a year, but I want more. I know that's the worst part about binging culture is that look, here's the new season. I was like, now I have to wait a year and a half. It's over. Yeah. Nightmare. <laughs> anyway, so Sonar Mitchell, what are you obsessed with this week? Oh my God, I am obsessed with Black Panther. I oh, my best friend and I have been joking for like the last year that we just have to live long enough to see Black Panther and to see Black Widow get her own movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like, I have seen exactly one trailer for Black Panther because I don't want to be spoiled but i have seen all of the the set pictures and i've seen everybody at the red carpet premieres and i'm like ripping my face off in anticipation (laughs) and we should say for those listeners in the world in which we're recording this black panther has not come out yet (laughs) yeah yeah so yes um but Um, it's back in time yeah (laughs) because my sister's birthday is this weekend too so it's her birthday movie i'm very excited about that too Oh, like I bought my tickets for this movie three weeks ago. Um, and my wife and I go to the movies on Sunday morning. It's just like, you know, kind of our little tradition. Mm-hmm. And three weeks ago, before the movie has opened, on a Sunday morning, I was really lucky to actually get two seats together. So, like, it is going to be, oh, this weekend is going to be lit. I am so excited. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> like, I am I am, I am ready to pledge my fealty to Wakanda. <laughs> um, anything that Michael B. Jordan wants me to do, it's done. I'm just, I am so there and I'm so excited. Excellent. Um, okay. <laughs> on that note, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for joining me. And this has been a great talk. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love, this has been so much fun. I've known you for so long and I've never actually talked, talked to That's you true. like with voices. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been almost ten years. It really has. Um, Okay, thanks, Sandra. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to my guest Sandra Mitchell, and thanks to all of you listeners. Um, Sandra can be found on her website at sandramitchell.com, or on Twitter at the very cleverly named at Sandra Mitchell. I can be found also on Twitter at LiteratiCat. And as you may know, the LiteratiCast has a Patreon. We can be found at www.patreon.com slash LiteratiCat. Throw in a dollar and you just might win fabulous books. I do a drawing every month um, for books that we've talked about on the podcast, including this month will be a copy of the shiny and beautiful All Out. Also, Sandra will be um, going on tour in March, so check out her website for more details. Thanks so much again for listening, and see you next time.